Hello everyone and welcome back to It All Starts Here. This is a podcast focusing on the science communication and education of reproductive science and women's health. And we are here at the Institute for Women's Health um, here in London at UCL. I'm your host, Olivia Moyer. And today we are going to be talking about fertility education. Um, so this topic, um, to discuss this today, I have with me the wonderful Professor Joyce Harper, who is a professor of reproductive science here at the Institute for Women's Health. Um, she's worked in the fields of fertility, genetics, reproductive health, and women's health for over 30 years, and is passionate about education and discussion of all aspects of women's health. Um, but especially at three key stages, one of them we're going to talk about today. Um, and these three are the menstrual cycle, the fertile years, and the menopause. So I am so excited to be speaking with you today, Joyce, um, about fertility education and for the wealth of knowledge that you're going to be bringing to this conversation. Um, I know that you've been working in this field for many years now. Um, I think you got into it back in your 20s. Um, and I thought maybe it'd be great to share with everyone kind of what inspired this and, and how you kind of started down this field and this pathway. Thank you very much. It's a real pleasure to be here. So after I finished my PhD, I was looking for a job, and this was back in 19, um, 1987. And in those days, we used to look through a magazine called New Scientist. It's still around, but it's all online now. <laughs> but we had a hard copy. And I was sitting in the library, and I saw an advert for a job as a clinical embryologist. So Louise Brown, the world's first IVF baby, was born in 1978. So this was not even nine years later. And I was thinking, yeah, let's, let's see what this job is. I didn't even really know what it meant, but I thought, let's apply for this exciting-sounding job. So I did, and I got the job. And the next thing, I was learning lots of amazing information about our reproductive health and fertility, things that I really didn't know. I'd done a biochemistry degree, and a biomedicine PhD, and I was learning all this information that I think was really basic and that every woman should have understood. And as I was learning things, I was talking to my friends and telling them about their menstrual cycle and their fertility and all of these things, and they didn't know about it. None of us knew about it. And I thought, I need to write a book about this, but I'll come on to that in a moment. But basically, it took me about 30 years to write the book. It came out a couple of years ago, but... That really sparked my love of and the urgency that we need to be teaching fertility education to everybody. Absolutely. Yeah. And, and I think and I shared with you, you know, um, personally, that's kind of where my interests have started. It, it's a lot to do with kind of your community and the people that you surround yourself with. And something that I find, as I've said before on this podcast is true, is that there's a lot of information out there, but the way that we've presented it has just been not always the best. And I think, you know, like, that's why we're here today to discuss how we can do it better. Um, so talking about fertility education, maybe we can start kind of how the history of it, you know, what has it looked like before? Um, what are some of the issues around this that you have found, um, gaps that you found in that area? What, like just diving right in to the, to the education of it. Well, back in 87, the only book I could find that really taught a woman anything about her body was a book called Our Body, Ourselves. It was a USA book. And that's why I wanted to start writing a book in 1987 to fill that very, very big gap. And I did start it. I read about 40,000 words. 
Um, but life got in the way. The next thing I realised, oh, all my friends are now going through the menopause. Um, jumped forward, you know, 20-odd years. We'd had kids and menopause was approaching. And then I realised, okay, I need to write the book. Because as you said, there's lots of information out there. And the internet dispersed things. So back in 2015, I set up a website called Global Women Connected. Where I was writing blogs about women's health with some other colleagues. And I thought, maybe that's the way forward. I, maybe I don't need to write a book. But then I realised it became so disjointed. And I really wanted to write a book that women could dive into. So it covers everything from puberty, past the menopause... So depending on what stage of life they're going through, they can dip in and learn some information. And my passion has always been evidence-based information because there's so much misinformation out there that myself and many others are spending our entire time debunking the very many myths around reproductive health. So there's been lots and lots of gaps, and I'm not the only one that's been trying to fill it. There's been some fabulous international work of people that have done groundbreaking studies looking at what people know about their fertility and where the gaps are. So a few years ago, back in 2019, I was at a conference in Copenhagen with, um, it was a preconception conference, preconception health conference, but there was a big session on fertility education. So many of the world leaders were there. And I said that, look, there's all these pockets of brilliant research going on. I felt we needed to join all this together and join forces because so many of the people working in this field have very, very different backgrounds. So we've got the health psychologists, we've got the embryologists, we've got the clinicians, we've got the sociologists. There's a really multidisciplinary team of people working on this. And I, I love uniting people to work together. So back in 2019, we set up a group um, we initially called ourselves the International Fertility Education Initiative, um, but this year we changed our name to be more inclusive of reproductive health. It's not just about fertility, it's not just about women's health, and it's definitely not just about having babies. There's lots of information that people need to know, such as polycystic ovary syndrome, endometriosis, menopause, etc. So this international group, we've now named ourselves the International Reproductive Health Education collaboration that's a very long title so it's IREC for short and we have become part of ESHRA and ESHRA is the European Society of Human Reproduction and Embryology and they are one of the biggest if not the biggest fertility and reproductive health society in the world and I've worked with them for, for decades and they were the obvious place for us to sit and they've been so supportive in helping us do this important work and try and fill in those many, many gaps we have around reproductive health, right from schools, right through to work with companies and beyond. That's amazing and touches on so many of the points that I think are so important, like namely the collaboration between the different fields that people work in. Um, and I think that's something that, you know, through my time here at UCL has become increasingly important like something that I've become aware of more so since being here is just that having the different perspectives is really important because at the end of the day people feel differently about so many different things and so when you're making different um you know if you're trying to educate on a topic it's important to take different opinions into consideration so that you know what you're educating about is kind of more well-rounded um and, you know, as you mentioned briefly, beginning with schools, right from the very beginning, I think, I mean, with my background, my 
I mean, I don't even think I had anything to do with fertility education back when I was in school um, until I started studying in my bachelor's. Um, I think obviously in high school, they teach you a little bit about it and the concepts, but the understanding that there are so many different things that can stem, you know, outside of just the actual pregnancy, but to do with fertility, I mean, people don't even think about that. Like, what do you mean that I can't get pregnant? Of course I can. I'm a woman, but it's like, no, not necessarily. So I think, you know, what, what do you think would be important in terms of fertility education if you're trying to integrate this into a school with students that are of younger years? I mean, it's, I guess it's hard to navigate that. Um, what do you tell them? How do you tell them? What do you think is important in that setting? Well, about six years ago, I went to my local school with a list of topics that I thought should be included in high school education. And I said to the... I, was talking to a biology teacher and said to her, tell me what you teach. And she said, you're going to be very upset, Joyce. <laughs> she said, we really don't teach hardly any of this. So then the research began. So we published a couple of papers looking at the UK curriculum. And for sure, lots of the topics that, that were on my list are not included in the curriculum. But then in 2019, the Department for Education have now included in the curriculum that we should teach about reproductive health, pre-pregnancy health and um, fertility and menopause within schools. So that's really got the ball running for me. We did a survey of UK school kids at age 16 to 18, and it's also been repeated in Belgium and in Greece. And we asked school kids many things. It was about their attitudes and their knowledge of reproductive health and fertility. But we also asked them, to tell us which, which of the topics on my list they had learnt in school and which they'd le- looked for information outside school. So really interesting, things like menopause, 10% had learnt something in school, but 50% of teenagers had looked for information outside school. Then we've got things like uh, PCOS, I mentioned earlier, polycystic ovary syndrome, endometriosis, less than 5% of teenagers had Uh, been taught any of this in school and these are both disorders that affect one in ten women so very common diseases but we haven't even told the school kids about them Um, so they have learned about um, puberty a bit about the menstrual cycle they've done sexually transmitted infections and contraception so the message that has been taught in schools is how not to get pregnant but there hasn't been any education on how to have a healthy pregnancy when you are ready to. And one thing I ask when I go into schools is, how many of you want to have children? And about 60% say they do want to have children. There's quite a few that are not sure. So it's important. But as I said, it's not just fertility. When I started giving the school talks, I was talking about fertility education and then realised that what I think of as, as fertility, my book's called Your Fertile Years, And it's certainly not just about having children. My view of fertility is all of reproductive health. But that's why the international group, we changed our name to reproductive health because in the population, in the public, that's what they understand more, that reproductive health, even for me, reproductive health means you're reproducing, but reproductive health does sit better with the public rather than fertility, which has the connotation of definitely wanting to have a child. Right. Yeah, that makes sense. And I think, I mean, I think definitely some of the arguments against having that education in school would just be that, 
you know, maybe it's something that they, they don't need. It's something that's so far down the line. And, and I, you know, even on the other side, it's like, well, maybe giving this information could cause unwanted pregnancies and so forth and so forth. But I mean, I think I would argue against that. And I think also what's important is, as you said, and the same holds true, I think, no matter what age you are, when you're in a school setting, I think a lot of the time you feel maybe uncomfortable or you feel like it's not the place to be asking questions particularly re- related to reproductive health. Um, but something that's really interesting is, okay, like let's say we're not giving this education in a school. You maybe see your, your GP once a year. Um, outside of that, where where is this information coming from? Like a Google search that can get so misleading. I mean, we've all been down that route before where you Google something and then all of a sudden you find out that you're actually dying in that moment, according to Google. So I think going forwards, it would be so important really to reconsider the fact that our education is not, is coming from, you know, largely outside of a school when, you know, having the important and right messages that there's such a, there's such a way for them to be communicated properly to you. Um, maybe not, it, just in a more standard way um, and more accessible way. In, uh, in our school survey, we asked teenagers, where would you like to learn about this information? And school, in all the surveys we've done, even with, the, um, with adults, they've all said school needs to be the basis. So we're working on that. The international group, we've set up a teaching guide to teach reproductive health, all the things I've spoken about, and postmenopause. And it's just um, been out for consultation. It just finished a couple of days ago. So now I'm working my way, or our committee are working our way through all the uh, questions and comments people gave, which I'm really glad they did. Um, It's really important with any resource for the public, any education resource for the public or for teachers to co-design this with the group that it's for. So we have been doing this with students, with teachers, and anything we prepare for the public, we we co-design with the public. So we are now going to embark on a project in September where we're going to work with a small number of schools and now help the teachers and work with the teachers to see how they use our teaching guide. What do they want more of? What do they want less of? How else can we help them as an international group of multidisciplinary experts? How can we help them deliver this? Because they're the ones delivering this to the students and also finding out if the Um, change in education hopefully the improvement in education has actually had an impact so we're doing a big study with a small number of schools starting in the UK and then we're going to do this in different countries different countries have very different thoughts about this so for example my colleagues in Belgium they do not have menopause on their curriculum so there are menopause uh, slides in our teachers resource but they said our teachers won't even touch those because it's not in the curriculum they won't teach anything extra so it's a really big project to try and support schools and give them the information that they need, that we can provide them with to, to deliver this, to try and make it easy for them. But as you said, it is wider than that. People will Google things. So our international group, we have a, a website where we're putting various resources. In the next uh, few months, we're going to have some recordings of people telling their real stories about their fertility uh, journeys and their reproductive health journeys. And we're also writing some information leaflets. We're we're co-designing these again with the public. We're setting up a public focus group that we're going to work with over a few months to develop these information leaflets. And there's lots, lots more we can do. We're just sort of starting off. It's it's been 
four years since we formed, but there's still so much to, to do. To try to make this as comprehensive as possible, we need to work with companies, we need to work with the public, we need to work with schools, and really try and tackle this from all sides. But our website will be an evidence-based place for people to get correct information about reproductive health. Uh, and yeah as you said evidence base is so important and I think you know something that I really harp on too you know you something that we talked about in in other episodes you know with science communication the importance of having those pieces and those bits there to back up what you're saying um and kind of extending out of that in terms of fertility like um what do you think are important bits of information for women to know what are what are, or just anyone to know that is curious about fertility? What are pieces that um, really seem to matter? What are things that maybe don't seem to matter as much that we maybe focus on too much? What are you? What are your thoughts? I'll start with the fact that we do focus on women too much. And I, I would do the same when you said women and then changed. And, and I'm the same. I still sometimes do it. So we've got to stop thinking that these things are women's issues um, they're everyone's issues, whether directly or indirectly. They can affect everybody. And again, whether you want children or not. But if we're looking at fertility, the key information is about male and female fertility decline. So when I started this, I was always talking about female fertility decline. But we have a large num- amount of data now showing that male fertility does decline, not to the extent of women's, which women when they're postmenopausal will be totally infertile. Men do not lose their fertility like we do, but it does decrease and it does have an effect on the chance of getting a pregnancy. So that's the main issue. Female fertility decline really starts in a woman's 30s. By the age of 35, <coughs> it can become really quite significant. And many women see, we all, we all see celebrities um, getting pregnant at 45 or 50 and we think, that's the norm um, but it's really not the norm and the trouble is that now we talk about 40 being uh, the new 20 and 60 being the new 40 and we're all feeling healthier and fitter than we were before but unfortunately our fertility hasn't quite caught up with evolution so we still lose our fertility in our mid-30s by the time we get to 40 the majority of women will be infertile and find it very hard or, or impossible to get pregnant And by age 45, almost everyone, every woman, will have lost her fertility. So we have to be aware of that. That's the main point. And it doesn't matter if you're doing yoga and eating a healthy diet, that will still happen. So menopause is the end of our fertility. And menopause will happen um, anywhere, really. Well, any age, menopause can happen. But more commonly, between 45 and 55. And we lose our fertility quite a few years before that. It's yeah, it's really important, I think, um, to stress that and highlight that just because you see a celebrity online doing one thing doesn't mean that that is applicable to the population. And um, absolutely. Um, I know that you are an avid cold water swimmer. (laughs) So I guess I was I mean, I know that you've talked about um, the you know, you have a community of, of women and, and people that you talk to um, and how their experience through different stages of their fertility and the menopause, how that's been helpful. I mean, I've mainly heard about the um, the benefits from you regarding the menopause, but how, do you think, you know, there's some application of this sort of temperature, cold water swimming to fertility itself? 
I certainly think it is for menstrual health. Um, we did a survey last year asking women if they felt cold water swimming helped their, or how it affected their menstrual and menopause symptoms. We didn't want to put the idea in their head. We said, how, does it have an impact, positive or negative? And absolutely very, very positive. Cold water swimming, as well as being, in, as you said, in a community, you're outside in nature, um, all of those things just on their own would make you feel much happier and supported. But also the effects of the cold water, it's, it's very euphoric. It can reduce cramps. Any exercise, if you feel up to it, can help through that premenstrual and menstrual time. And it can help uh, reduce migraines. And this is what the, the women have been telling us that they felt that it did. So all of those things are just tick, 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 tick. Um, and it's, it also makes you feel very, very strong. So I've, I'm an avid exerciser. I exercise almost every day. But as you get older, you, if anything, you slow down a little bit. You can't run quite so fast. You can't lift so many weights. But cold water swimming, no matter what your shape, size, age, you, you will adapt you, and your body adapts very quickly. So um, that was one of the bonuses that I found, besides all those other benefits I said, the fact that I, get, I got better and better every time I did it. So, you know, I can stay in cold water now for much longer than I could the year before. I did start for a few months with a wetsuit. I haven't worn a wetsuit for years. Um, and the clothes get less and less <laughs> um, as the time goes on. So, you know, when I took my very fit 17-year-old son swimming recently and he stayed in for about two minutes and I stayed in for 20 you know I was like yes look at me you know I, I can do something that my fit kid can't do so I think that's very empowering and and feeling physically strong is really good but the, yeah the benefits are really amazing but it is dangerous um I strongly suggest reading up everything you can about it before that's what I did and the motto I always use is swim your own swim don't do what the person next to you is doing we're all very different and um, so I have started my own podcast recently and I've had a few quite a few of my guests have been avid cold water swimmers and I've also interviewed um, Heather Massey who um, she I read everything she did uh, she all her research she researched on, on extreme sports so she was one of my go-to people before I started swimming and she gives some really helpful hints then about how to be safe. Yeah, I think that's great. And I um, I really, really like that point that you said about how it can be empowering. Because I think that's a lot of um, this field outside of just the actual kind of education bit of fertility and the communication of it. I mean, behind all of that is people who feel empowered to do that. So I think anything that supports that is really important. Um and back to your podcast. So, I mean, I know it's called Why Didn't Anyone Tell Me This? And I I love it. I've listened to, I think, all of the episodes now. Um, and I think pertaining to fertility education, I mean, you've touched a little bit about this before, um, but um, I guess in com conversations you've had with your friends and the different communities that you're a part of, what do you find particularly about fertility where you're like, why? Why did I not know this? Why did someone not tell me this? What, you know, what do you wish your 20-year-old self had know, known about fertility? Yeah, so I didn't start my job till I was 25. So, um, 
it's a hard one for me to think what I would have told myself. Um, actually, also on my podcast, I do ask everybody what would, what advice would they give their younger self. And the very first episode is me. Um, what I talked about then was about well-being. So I said that I've always exercised right from a really young age. I did ballet and tap when I was three or four years old. So I've really felt very empowered about exercise. I am very, very good at sleeping. <laughs> People say it's my superpower. Sleeping is really important. Exercise is really important. But for me, the two parts of my well-being, I think, that I didn't do when I was younger, which and, and these are related to reproductive health, um, one is being still. And we are much more um, thinking about meditation and mindfulness nowadays but I think I, I think I, I rush. I'm very manic, so I rush around a lot. Um, and I wish I, I spent time now being still. But I wish I'd spent time when I was younger, just being still. It doesn't come naturally to me. But the main one for me is um, my nutrition. I, I'm pretty good with my nutrition, but I've always struggled with my weight. I have a sugar addiction. And when I go into schools, I talk about these four pillars of well-being: so nutrition, exercise, sleep and our mental health that for me was the stillness so i think those four are key through our whole reproductive life and and beyond just for our general health anyway they're obviously really important but when we're trying to deal with our menstrual cycle those four pillars of well-being are really really important when we're trying to get pregnant they're really important when we're pregnant or before we get pregnant when we're pregnant they're really important post-pregnancy important and then when we hit the menopause those are the four areas that the doctors would advise women to think about first are they looking after those four pillars so I think those are essential for our reproductive health I wish someone had wrapped it up in that way for me when I was younger um, I wish I'd thought more about things like my mental health more about my sugar addiction um, and had prepared myself more. I, I've, I haven't had any... I had years of infertility, actually. I went through years of IVF tr treatment, and my kids are IVF kids. But, um, yeah, I'd wish I'd balanced those a little bit more. And I think they're really important for our reproductive health. And my podcast is aimed at reproductive health, but it does have an overview of health, because all of those feed into our long-term health. So risk of dementia, Alzheimer's, heart disease, cancer, etc., hugely affected by those four pillars of well-being so when i go to schools i end my talk talking about that and i really think that kids need to do more on that relating to reproductive health and our general health overall really really important so important i i completely agree and i think you know i maybe it's a topic for another day because i i know that we could both talk about this for hours but you know just infertility as well like i mean something that has become really true for me through this is we had a class and it was talking about pregnancy and childbirth and the things that can go wrong. And one of the students said, oh, you know, well, we're only talking about the really extreme end of cases and, and when things go wrong. But there's also so much that goes right. And I think, you know, the topic and the title of this podcast is fertility education. But I think what's so important about that isn't when it goes right. No one's asking questions when it's going right. Everyone wants to know, you know, when it's going wrong. And I think, you know, it's so important to focus on that. Um, just because it's better for the community and it, and you don't, you never want someone to feel alone in that. Um, so I think on that note, kind of going forward in the space of fertility education, um, 
what do you think will be, what do you look forward to seeing? What do you think will be the changes? And, and, you know, what do you hope for this field? So one of the aims of our international group is to prevent some infertility and to keep people out of the fertility unit. Some of the people in our group work in fertility units, but we, we want to ideally see pe- more people have children naturally if they want to have children. So um, having been on the other side of the table and going through seven years of fertility treatment to have my kids, I know how distressing and stressful and traumatising it is. And I've know people that have not had a baby and those that have a baby, it, it doesn't matter. It's really, really traumatic for people to go through. So I would like to see less people going through fertility treatment. And to do that, we need to educate them and we need to give them the information so they can make their informed decision about how they want to deal with this. So in our studies, most people have said, most women for sure, men are slightly older, but most women have said they want kids around the age of 30, which is really interesting because that's the age I wanted kids when I was 30, which is 30 years ago. So I thought that people would have pushed that a bit later by now, but they haven't. They've said age 30. And that's a good age because, as I just said, in our mid-30s, we'll start to lose our fertility. Um, but the age that women are actually having their children in the UK and every country that's been examined worldwide is going up and up and is beyond that now in many, many countries. It's closer to age 34, 35 in many countries. So we've got to be sure they've got the education. But thinking of the future, what I do worry about is technology such as egg freezing and infertility treatment in general that will we see more people now ending up in the IVF unit because, for example, um, the woman's 30, her partner's not ready or she's not got a partner. Uh, she's ready, but she hasn't got anyone to have children with, so she goes to freeze her eggs. Or the younger woman finishes her degree age 21 and decides, OK, I'm going to go and do this particular career. I really need a good 10 15 years to establish myself so I'm going to freeze my eggs so with egg freezing which we are seeing increase globally it's not a guarantee you're going to have a baby it's very expensive you need to go through the the harsh fertility treatment I mentioned and it just concerns me that it's going to become much more common so that's putting people in the fertility clinic whereas we wanted to keep people out of the fertility clinic so I have concerns about where the future will go um, I yeah I would I would like to see people having more natural pregnancies without without having to go through fertility treatment, but I I think it's going to go the other way. Mm. It's interesting. I mean, I guess I guess we'll find out. And and you know, on the topic of egg freezing, which I hope to talk about in future episodes, um, it's going to be really I think interesting to unpack that and kind of the psychological side of that. Um, and the role that that will play, I think, in society. So, yeah, it's it's a really interesting topic, but at the end of the day, it, it, it does come back to the fact that having knowledge, that's power. And, you know, having knowledge about your fertility for everyone, not just women, is going to be very important, um, is very important um, to stress and going forwards. So... It's been so lovely having you here today, Joyce, to talk about fertility education. Um, 
Thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you. It's been a real pleasure. Thank you.